hello and welcome to everyone else who is joining. I see we got a lot of people joining in. Hello, everyone. I am not Harpreet, despite you might think. Oh, I know a lot of you guys look shocked, huh? I, I shaved my beard and this is what Harpreet looks like with a shaved beard. Just kidding. My name is Avery. I'm one of Harpreet's friends. And uh, yeah, I got a haircut too. Um, I'm just filling in for Harpreet today. I think he has uh, his sister visiting in town. And so I am just covering for him in the uh, in the happy hour. So if you guys don't know me, my name is Avery. Uh, I like data. I'm excited to to chat with you guys today about data. We were kind of, uh, we had uh, Carlos and Ken, we were talking about the uh, the idea of you. It's been It's been kind of crazy the last two years. And some of you guys, you know, it's, we don't have as much adult human human conversation as we did probably, you know, pre-COVID just because we're not working in the office as much. Um, and so some of this conversation is good for us to have, even though it, it's on Zoom. So welcome in. Um, I had a question. I just kind of wanted to start this off today with, with a little bit of a prompt about something that uh, I've been thinking about recently, and I would love to get your guys' opinion on it. And also feel free to add your own uh, comments or your own topics or own questions that you would like to talk about. But I just thought this would get us going. Um, and Kadisha is here, and she is uh, one of the members of Data Career Jumpstart, which is a uh, project camp that I run. And we had a hackathon the last two weeks. So we've been doing a hackathon with a company where I took one of my consulting projects and turned it into kind of a crowdsourcing activity, try to give them some, some you know, valuable insights from this data that they have. Um, and we just, we just submitted all of our hackathons, or I guess they submitted their submissions to me. And I went with the CEO of this company and kind of looked at it and, and decided, you know, what do we think was valuable and what was not valuable? But we ran into this question where a lot of people inside and participating in the hackathon were like, how do I submit insights? And so I just wanted to open it up to you guys. What, as you know, data professionals, what is the best way to, to present insights? Because you might've spent, you know, hundreds of lines in Python or R, or you might've written the world's longest SQL query, but how do you take these insights you've developed over you know, days or, or weeks and package them into something that is useful for a business stakeholder? So I'll, I'll just open up the floor. If anyone has any thoughts on how to best package data insights to a business stakeholder, go. I guess it depends on what they like, but in general, I find in consulting, they like PowerPoints. So what I do is I try to make interactive PowerPoints using like, you know, slide EIO and things like that, that let like embed an R shiny app inside a PowerPoint format. So this is what the defaults are. If you wiggle it, we get these results. Uh, other people not in consulting tend to like reports. Governments love reports. So I try to get them out of Word documents into again, like shiny markdown if possible. So that they have some wiggle room and things like that. Um, but I guess it depends on them, but I will just note that like, do not hand a business person a Jupyter notebook. Do not do that, do not do that. I keep seeing it. That excellent point. Ken, I saw you had your hand raised, go ahead. Yeah, that's a great insight by Carlos. Like you, like different strokes for different folks. You, like you have to know your client or who you're talking to, especially in a consulting setting. Uh, something that I think is really valuable is giving whoever you're presenting to or conveying this information to a little bit of ownership, right? And that's making like presenting it in a way that it's also their idea. So I find a very effective way to do that now is with dashboards. A very effective way to do that now is with storytelling and doing those types of things. Um, 
that is going to vary by each unique situation or presentation that you're giving. But if you have that in mind of like, how do I uh, present this in a way that the other person is bought in, they believe it, and they are part of the decision making and part of the discussion, and, and they feel like they're included. We're not talking over this person, we're not talking under this person. To me, that's an incredibly powerful way to convey any information, any new insight, any of these things. I, I like that because it's, it's people like to feel like they did something, right? And so um, I like that aspect of making it, making the stakeholder feel like it is theirs because after the at the end of the day, I mean, they're paying for it, right? So they do kind of, it is kind of theirs. They are owning it. Um, and, and going back to a little bit about what Carlos said, you know, the the dashboard is, is a big thing or just giving them some bells and whistles where they can like move something, they can, you know, move something to the left or move something to the right and uh, see, you uh, a little bit of like what happens with the results. So I appreciate that. I did notice, Eric, do you wanna, do you wanna mention what, what you typically do with, with these types of uh, reports? Oh yeah, I just said that I print out my Jupyter notebooks and mail them to my stakeholders. Sometimes I add some crayon comments in the margin so they know I'm saying, but no, uh, the thing I was actually gonna say though was um, that one thing I learned, like they like drove home like hardcore during my master's program, Alex is in the same program, so she knows, is like, your bluff, your bottom line up front, like put that on your first slide, make it like a number, make it big and make it fast. And like, so that it's the impactful thing. Cause at the end that they probably won't remember anything else or you won't get them to remember anything else if you don't catch them right off the bat with something that matters to them. Not necessarily that's just like super exciting for you. Anyway, that's all I had to add. What was that bluff? What, what does it stand for? I've never heard that before. Bluff, bottom line up front. It All is right. a great North Star. Keep it in mind. <laughs> it's helped I, I do, me a ton. I, I do like that. So I, I did see in the chat also we have uh, Makiko here and everyone else who joined. Looked like we got Matt and Gina and other Matt. And uh, let's see who else. I Have I said hello to everyone? Alex and Vin and Arthur. Welcome, welcome. Appreciate all of you guys being here. Do any of you guys have any topics or something that does someone want to ask? Oh, do we have any hands raised? Yes, we do. Monica, hi. I didn't say hi to you. How are you? Hello, good, how are you? Good, what's up, what's on your mind? Yeah, all of these have been really great. I just wanted to add, it depends on what you are providing to your stakeholders or customers as well, because I have a lot of background in uh, providing analytics and metrics and such. So dashboarding is very heavily involved there, whether it be in Tableau, Power BI or whatnot. Um, one important thing to add though, with any dashboarding service to provide is to um, not just present it to the stakeholder and let them, you know, run with it, uh, sit down with them and really like walk them through the functionality because a lot of times they don't really know how to interact with the dashboard. They don't even know that you can click and drill in or anything like that. So really sit down with them and show them all of that functionality up front and hopefully cross your fingers that they won't print it out because I have actually seen that happen as well. <laughs> Always, always seems uh, a little counterproductive, but hey, some people, some people like their printed stuff. I have this is my calendar, so I, I can't deal with digital calendars. I have to, I have to print mine out. So I guess I'm archaic in, in some ways. But, but thanks for your point, Monica. That's a great point. Eric, did you have your hand raised? Yeah, I just thought of one other thing when Monica was saying that. And that is like, I was, I was thinking this week that probably the number one skill data e skill I'm working on right now and it's kind of related to you know delivering final results to stakeholders is like the 
ton of communication with stakeholders that happens all along the way. Like I'm, I'm not improving my modeling skills or my SQL skills or whatever nearly as much as I'm like getting better at like remembering like I need to put in a ticket for that person because there's no way they're going to just remember this magically in three days that I made this request or something or making sure I'm adequately commenting things and stuff so that, you know, a couple weeks down the road, people know that they weren't forgotten and they feel like they're being engaged with and then they're more likely to engage me back and, you know, just be my friends because, you know, I need more friends for that. So whatever. But anyway, yeah. So like stakeholder communication and has just been so huge. And I just think I'm just going to be working on that until I die, probably. Carlos, go ahead. Yeah, so actually, I didn't, Monica kind of like woke my brain up into like more mechanical than I was thinking. Uh, in government contracting, we actually have like a very specific list of requirements for deliverables. And they'll include like, you know, recorded demo, something we call like O&M, like operations and maintenance, like an O&M guide. Um, you know, like a run book, which is actual interactions, what you should expect from an interaction. So I've developed documentation that's like, this is the Power BI screen. This is this visual. This is the table that feeds to that visual. If you click this, you will get this output. For example, see this appendix, this timestamp of this video. Like, I forgot this how in depth some clients like it. So just to double up on what Monica said of like, do not assume that they know that right click drill through is different than right click drill down because they will call you wondering why the tab didn't change stuff like that so yeah just double just doubling down what monica said and also giving an example on like the actual words you can google o m run book things like that excellent point i had a i had a history teacher who when when he was in high school he worked for i think disney world or disneyland and he played eeyore and I don't know if this is true today, but this is this is what he told us that that he he's you know he's maybe seventy now. He's he he was a teenager a long time ago. Um, but he says when he was at Disney, the number one they the number one rule they would tell you was never underestimate the stupidity of an average American. And I think I think that's probably true for for all of us is you know never underestimate how little business stakeholders do know, especially on the technical side, especially with some of this you know. With some of these, you know, fancier dashboards or or something they maybe never have seen, it might be uh, it might be troublesome. Uh, they might not know what they're actually doing, and they might be missing out on a lot of opportunities to actually get more insight than than they are right now. Vin, I'm curious to get your take. What what what's your opinion on delivering deliverables or delivering insights to uh, stakeholders? I think I mean I'm going to kind of repeat maybe some different words what's already been said, but I, I ask people how they get their insights now. And in a lot of cases, when I phrase it that way, like insights, stakeholders will realize I don't get a whole lot of insights out of my data. And they're asking me for a bunch of stuff that isn't really insightful. And so I like starting the conversation about how you get stuff delivered now, kind of raising the expectation of what I'm going to be delivering. I mean, obviously, that's dangerous. I better be able to do it. But what I'm asking them for is not only how do you want to see it, but what do you want to see? Because that's, that's the more important question. I mean, you're going to have to deliver something at some point. But more times than not, the first thing that I, and this, I ran into this about six years ago. The first thing I would deliver wasn't really what they wanted. It was what they told me they needed, but it wasn't really what they wanted. And so I spend a lot more time now making sure I deliver what 
you know, stuff that they actually want the way they want it. But more importantly, I spent a lot of time asking them, what do you really care about? Like, what's really important to you, especially when I'm starting up with a new client, I spend a ton of time just saying, you know, what do you really care about? I know what you've been kind of trained to ask data people for, but like, if I was better than every other data person, because obviously, what would you ask me for? You know, if I could wave a magic wand and work with a great team, which is probably what I have behind me, what would you want? And, you know, kind of get a list and then, okay, how do I make that useful to you? And kind of get an idea of, because, you know, reports are great, PowerPoints are great. A lot of companies do have really rigid formatting and, you know, government agencies as well. But there's always an opportunity. Yeah, you have to fill in the blank, you know, fill in boxes, but there's always an opportunity on the side to deliver something better and potentially help that organization understand, eh, you know, we could be getting this in a different way. We could be consuming this in a better way. Maybe we can aggregate some of this data because most, most organizations have too much of this thrown at them, usually from different organizations and inside of their own. And so that's the approach I take. Is that, I mean, I guess it's because I come into a lot of situations where I have to clean up messes. And so I'm always expecting there to be a mess there for me to clean up. And so I'll ask some of those questions up front before I'll deliver a project to anybody. Um, yeah, that was that was a great insight. Uh, Ken, Ken has a question. Uh, do you want to vocalize it, Ken? Go ahead if you want to. Yeah. So just real quick, like to follow up on that, how, how do you personally balance or what are some tips on balancing between what people say they want and like the unarticulated needs about what they like should want from a data perspective or what they don't know that they want. I find that very difficult. Like, where do you get started? Do you send like the dashboard first and get feedback? Or do you start with the questions? I mean, probably the right answer is it's some sort of iteration, but I'd love any framework you have around that. Yeah, I, I am overconfidently ignorant. And I'm, I think I've said this before. I go in with sort of this overconfidence in my own ignorance and, and I ask really stupid questions because most times stupid questions haven't been asked for at least a year, sometimes more than that. And stupid questions reveal assumptions. That's how I start getting to what they really need to understand is I start asking dumb questions. And I know that sounds like a really, you know, it sounds like a bad framework to follow to ask those questions. But what I find is that usually by the third or fourth meeting where I'm asking those types of questions, everyone's coming to the same realization that I am that, you know, we should be asking these more frequently, we should be testing assumptions more often. Maybe we should be educating people that are brought in better, so that all of this institutional knowledge, you know, gets to them so they can do their job faster than three or four meetings down the road. And so that's how I get there is I ask a lot of questions that, you know, most people are afraid of asking because they're afraid they're going to feel stupid. And I guess I'm kind of comfortable in that role. I don't, I know that doesn't sound great, but I'm sort of comfortable being ignorant and asking the questions assertively and then helping everyone realize that it's okay to ask what they don't know. And that's usually where I start getting to assumptions when I ask the stupid questions and then when other people ask questions that they used to think were stupid, but compared to what I've just said is, you know, Einstein level, they, they start thinking, well, that was a dumb question, but it, my question is not nearly as dumb as that one. So I now have permission to ask my dumb question because it's smarter than that. And he seemed to get a positive response. So 
they start asking different kinds of questions and that starts the unarticulated needs. And it's really giving people permission to ask me for crazy stuff. That's sort of the level two. Once they've started asking questions and they've started articulating, like this is the thing I've always been afraid to ask because I'm scared of what the answer may be or I'm scared of looking stupid or whatever it is. But the next layer is really getting them to ask for crazy stuff. You know, hey, I've always wanted this. How far, how close can we get to that? And I want, that's, that's really where I can add a lot of value and teams can add a lot of value is when we get people to start asking for, you know, have you ever been to Mars? Could you get us there? And those types of things where somebody's had an idea of, you know, this would provide a lot of value to the team as sort of an efficiency project, or this would provide a lot of value to our customers as maybe a first stab at monetizing models. And they'll start asking me for stuff and I'll say, you know what, let's look at that. And it gives them permission again, you know, ask me for crazy things. It's not crazy. That's what we're here for. That's why I'm, that's why we're all sitting around the table together. Ask for crazy things. If it's impossible, I'll say, I'm going to look into it anyway. I mean, what, what do I know? Maybe it's not impossible. And a lot of times people my age and older, we have a tendency to go, impossible. A little too much. And so I've opened my mind back up and I, I well, let me look at that. I don't know. Yeah, I probably tried that before, but you know, things move quick. Let me take a look at that. And it's like a permission thing. And you get layers of permission to the point where they start asking you for stuff that really would be valuable for them. Wow, that, that was a lot. Gina, I see your hand, you have your hand raised. What, what do you have to comment on this? Yeah, I kind of wanted to um, loop back on some of the earlier comments as well around you know, like, um, let's not confuse stupid, you know, never underestimate the stupidity of the American public, whatever, with, um, shall I say, busy, or just the, your stakeholders have a lot going on. If they're on the business side, they don't have time to learn Tableau. And it may be frustrating to some of us that some of them are not even, you know, kind of fluent in Excel, but that's the reality. If you want to be effective, realize that you've got to figure out the best way to present it to your stakeholders and, you know, ask them, ask them what's useful for them. Um, you know, this is, and it's a challenge for everybody. It's a challenge for me. Um, you know, if you put up a chart that's anything more than really a line graph or a simple bar graph, be ready to walk them through it succinctly and, um, you know, and clearly so that they can actually grasp what it is you're trying to tell them. So I also think of it like this. So like, you know, the kids today, right? Kids look at us older folks and depending on how old you are, that could be any age, right? I mean, when I was in college, I thought 22 year olds were old. And I'm a lot older than that now. They are all kids. And the older you get, the more <laughs> everyone kind of looks alike in terms of age. And, you know, I've been thinking about this. It's like, at what point when we get older, do we seem to turn into old fuddy-duddies, especially the way technology just moves ever faster? Well, the bottom line is, as we get to be adults, we've got jobs. We've, you know, maybe some people, some of us have kids. Some of us have, you know, needy cats running around. I mean, there's all, you're running a household. You don't have time to learn all of this stuff. That's just the way it is. And so I always like to 
you know, remind myself of this, even when I've worked with people, I mean, we had a Salesforce implementation in my last job and it was, it was not perfect. It was kind of clunky because the, the head person who wanted this, um, I think maybe thought that more could be done with it in a streamlined fashion than could be done. And um, there were people in my group who were just like, I'm not gonna do this. Like, I mean, if it was more than a few clicks and I and they wanted me to walk them through it and I would walk them through it. And, you know, depending on my relationship with the person, it's kind of like, look, man, just, you know, just have a little patience, just step through this a little bit. But the reality is, is like, there are people who are just extremely impatient with it. Now, you know, you can't wave a magic wand and have them magically understand it. There are data, there is data that is analyzed to help make decisions. But, you know, just kind of put yourself in their shoes if there's any kind of frustration around how do I present this in a way that's really effective. And the last little bit I'll just add in to what Vin said. And I think, I mean, Vin said it great, but it, I've heard this said in certain consulting contexts. What's the question behind the question? Your client thinks you want, they want one thing, but oftentimes there's actually something else underneath it that, that they really, that that's what they really want. And they may not realize it themselves. And so that's where consultants really add value because if they add value, <laughs> good ones add value because they understand that there is at least at the beginning, certainly an iterative process trying to uncover what the, what the real value is. Okay, so that's that's my spiel. I love it. It's it's definitely key to, uh, yeah, to always ask the why behind the why behind the why. And and Vince says consultants were not all bad. I guess. Um, anyone else have any thoughts about just presenting and I guess uh, communicating effectively with stakeholders? Or does someone else have a question or a comment they'd like to ask, and we can totally pivot from here? I'm I'm happy either way. So just uh, let me know. What do you guys think? One thing, uh, while, while we're all thinking collectively, one thing I'll go back to um, kind of what, what Vin was talking about earlier. Um, so I run a really small consulting firm for, for data science, right? And I, I deal with some clients that are probably uh, pretty small and pretty new into the data field. Um, and I've recently, so I'll have people reach out to me via LinkedIn or on my website and they'll say, hey, I have this, this idea I want to make. Um, and they'll, like, they'll ask for like a price estimate or whatever, right? And I've really found that I am unable to ever give them a price based off of what they send me in an email. Like it never, ever, ever is like, oh, that's really clear what you want. And also it doesn't really allow me to ask, well, what are you actually doing? So I'll just share, I'll just share an anecdote. Um, and maybe you guys, some of you guys will be able to relate. I was working uh, this CEO of a small company. Um, they, were, they were a little venture backed, but they're very small, reached out to me. Um, and it's, uh, I won't say who, obviously, but it's a wearable device company, okay? Um, somewhere between 2.5 million and billion, uh, probably lower on the lower end. But they're, they're making a wearable uh, device for some sort of context, right? Um, and they reached out to me, hey, we want to make, you know, we want to have an algorithm for a wearable device that will count a certain action, okay? They want to be able to count an action automatically. And I said, okay. That's no problem. I have a background in signal processing. That's something I really like, like and enjoy. So I, was, I said I was interested. Um, and they said, can you quote me on this? And I'm like, well, okay, like 
We got a machine learning algorithm picking out some signals and above the noise, right? Um, and I don't remember if exactly if I if we have eventually like established like a, an estimate or not, but I get to the point where where I'm like, well, it's always easier if I like see the data that you have, and she sends me like one CSV, and uh, and we we kind of started the project, and I was like, okay, can you send me the rest of the data? And she was like, that's it. It was like one run from like one person's device, like a random number of activities. And like, and it was like, make a machine learning model. And it was like, oh, okay. I have to take a step back. I have to explain to the CEO who is not in the tech space at all, right? Which is, which is totally fine. But I have to explain, oh, okay. So usually for these things, you have to have at least a couple runs. If you want to do any sort of machine learning, you have to have like, a lot more runs than just one. So before we actually get started with anything, you know, we're going to have to actually generate some data. And she was, she was so confused at first, but I mean, that's what we're dealing with a lot of the time. Like you, you really, these people don't necessarily know what it takes to make a machine learning algorithm. All they know is Netflix has one and Tesla has one and Facebook has one. So my new business should also have one, but sometimes they're not even ready. You're like, oh, you don't even, you're steps away from, from machine learning. Um, and that can be a hard lesson for, uh, you know, these companies to learn. They don't necessarily know what they don't know, right? Has anyone else had something ex experience similar where, I mean, Vin's too nice. And I guess Vin, he's like, well, I don't think that's possible, but I'm going to go ahead and look into it re regardless. I'm, I'm not as nice. I was like, I can't do that. I'm sorry. But have you ever had uh, like an experience where you're like completely on the wrong terms of a stakeholder or, or you know, someone who's asking you to do something? Yeah, lots. Um, I'm sure I, I had a project implode because we were given three weeks to solve like a hundred million dollar hospital investment problem with like 70 rows of data and nobody actually trusted the data, including all the like thousand dollar an hour experts in the room. And we were like, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll create an application for you that'll kind of turn your opinions into like a model you know, analytic hierarchy process. And then you guys will do the inputs, we'll give you quizzes, we'll do all this like stuff together to kind of quantify your opinions. And there was a few stakeholders that were just like, this is stupid, why are we doing this? And they pretty much said that like throughout the whole process. So I don't know why they brought us on. And then at the end we delivered and they just said, actually, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna all now agree with that guy who's been saying no for three weeks. So we're not gonna do this anymore. And like, it was really bad burned a lot of bridges um, and it was a huge waste of time. And I was there at the very beginning saying like, yeah, 70 rows of data, none of you trust it, this isn't gonna go well, but you're paying us to do it and you really want it done. So I'll do whatever you need us to. You know what? That's a lesson learned there. Yeah, and it sounds like an unfavorable outcome, right? Um, but at the same time, I think ending the project after three weeks could be viewed as a actually good outcome rather than ending the project after 30 weeks, right? I think I've been part of an organization. So when I worked for ExxonMobil and I was a data scientist for ExxonMobil, um, you know, COVID hit, right? And all of a sudden, no one's driving anymore. There was the Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia price war on oil. It's driving oil down. All of a sudden, no one's traveling and oil's already really cheap. So Exxon's making $0. So they have a decision to make, right? They have to, you know, they basically laid off or... I'm not going to get into the details of that, but basically they had some layoffs, layoffs right? And we've been doing projects in our data science division that like 
had gone on for like a year or two years. And I was like, guys, this isn't going to pan out. Like, why are we still working on this? So sometimes, sometimes it is good. Hey, you know what? This was a terrible idea. This sucked. It's been three weeks. Let's just kill it right now. And that's way better than three months. And that's way better than three years. Avery's still under NDA. Um, no, but I have some articles coming out and I just don't want Exxon to ever sue me ever. So I'm just terrified of Exxon and big oil in general. Ken, sorry, go ahead. You know, I, I actually had a, a fairly similar situation a long time ago at a company I interned at. It's a very large Fortune 100 company. And it seemed like a lot of the data science department was brought on because they saw other really big companies doing this. Uh, essentially, it was, um, it was like a manufacturing business. And the project that I was working on, I had to build a model to predict if they should completely take apart an engine or they should um, only like partially take it apart. And what I came to realize, you know, like this project was framed by my data science manager, by this whole team, but they didn't look into the data at all. And what we found is the only, there was no ground truth related to this. The only information we had about if an engine should be uh, dismantled or not was if it was dismantled by someone's judgment previously. So the best possible model I could build would be to like recreate the decision-making process of the people who were doing it before. There was no ground truth around if this should be evaluated, if this should like actually be taken down, if there was something wrong with the engines. And the person that they were paying to do this was, it was just one person who was doing this consistently. He was super against the project. Uh, there, there were so many forces working against it that it was effectively destined to fail and not necessarily a good use case for data science. But it took forever, like months for me to explain why the data was a problem here and why I couldn't build a model on it. And I think that that's a little bit of a cultural thing. I think it is a little bit our job as data scientists to do this re-education, right? Because if we're working for this company for a long time, whether we're an employee or we're a long-term uh, consultant or whatever it is, like we don't want them making the same mistakes in the future. Um, you know, like if we want the best for the organization, like that is part of what we do. And honestly, in sports, I look at that as like a large portion of my job is how do I explain data and like create data literacy in an organization so that they can like do better next time um, or like create this understanding because the projects build on themselves, right? If you're creating this trust, if you're creating this understanding over time, that creates momentum. And that means you don't have to explain it. You know, maybe you only have to explain it, like reiterate it two or three times rather than five times in the next one. And then maybe one time and then they'll eventually get it. So. I, I'm, I'm like a big believer that to me, that was one of the best learning lessons that I could have is that, yeah, I was a grad student. Yeah, I was an intern, but I still had to teach. I still had to explain. Uh, I, I still had room to do that in the role that I was in. And, and I'm really grateful for that. It's a good, it's a good skill to have. Um, yeah, that ground truth, like the, the Doing supervised learning without that target variable is not an easy thing to do. I, have, I haven't really quite learned how to, how to do that yet. You kind of need some sort of ground truth. Um, did want to open it up to anyone who maybe hasn't commented yet. Um, I don't know if Kadisha or Makiko or Matt or Eric. Uh, Russell, I know, joined us kind of late here. If any of you guys uh, want to mention something, feel free to um, comment on this at all. Any of you guys got any, anything you guys want to mention? I was awesome. kind of curious to hear what, what people are doing for side projects or 
uh, for upskilling right now because, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just like looking for ideas for how to kind of continue growing as an engineer um, besides doing like personal projects and books. Um, but also it'd be kind of cool to hear what people are up to. I got I got one today. I'll just I'll be brief. Um, so like I said, I hosted this hackathon over the last two weeks um, where I don't know how many people actually participated, but it was kind of kind of my um, my group of students that I've been working with over the last three months, plus an additional group. So we had we had like overall a pool of you know over a hundred people, um, and I needed to make certificates for everyone, um, like customized certificates with their name on it, right? And I was like, how do you do that? So did some googling and I found a, a nice little um, you know PIL whatever package from Python and was able to like make a generic you know PNG for the actual certificate and then superimpose all of the uh, all of the names on there. Um, so basically, I didn't have to go in like some sort of graphic design or PowerPoint and copy and paste names for like hours. <laughs> so I rather did it in like 10 seconds. So not necessarily data science, but some automation in Python. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, actually, Carlos, do you want to talk a little bit about what you've been working up to in, in the Charlie Dow? It's been it's been fun to watch. Yeah, sure. So uh, Charlie Dow is a collective of data scientists, software engineers, product people, and uh, crypto web three people. We've got 44 members so far. The idea is that if you get a bunch of really smart people, put them in a Discord together, ask them to donate two to five hours a month. Uh, we think there's going to be some magic that's going to happen. So, so far, we're working on a few different projects. Um, really, the two of them are my projects, but the idea is that anyone in the collective can kind of just propose a project. And if people want to join the project, they just make a channel and they do it. Uh, we only ask that if you monetize, you exit and spin out before you monetize to keep the collective out of all that nonsense. Although I love money. So we're working on um, uh, some smart contract stuff, which is Solidity, not really this chat space. But the other one we're working on is our NFT analytics platform, which is just a fancy way of saying parameterized reports on various like NFTs and tokens with the goal being to help on the business intelligence side there's a lot of communities who they raise money, they launch NFTs and they earn hundreds of ETH, which is, you know, four or $500,000, even a few million dollars. And they have it in their treasury and they really don't know what they're doing with it. Um, you know, they're often, they're really good marketers or really good artists, but they're not necessarily people who understand business. And what we want to help them do, and obviously get paid to do, is like help them understand not just the sales activity, the finance boring stuff. I find it boring, uh, but also the like, community analytics, network analysis, who's in their community, how can we understand the like on-chain behavior of the people in the community, and then ultimately like, social media also. So integrating like social media analytics, mostly Twitter, but in the future, Discord and Reddit. Um, so you're probably thinking sentiment analysis and things like that. But we're also just thinking of like, how does it all interweave, right? Like, what does it mean for someone to join your community in the context of buying one of your NFTs? Um, what kind of on-chain signals are there that more people are interested in your community? How do you find out what your community actually likes and dislikes? Um, and really the whole business intelligence side of like, how do you grow your business when your business is a community of owners of something? Um, so I'm really excited for both those projects. And if anyone's interested in joining it, please let me know. The only thing you have to do is ask. There is no price or entry or anything. We just want people to ask to join as opposed to putting a link online and having people just hop in without like committing. We really do want like at least two to five hours a month, if possible, of 
code time, meetings, answering people's questions, reading, providing resources. Um, yeah, any questions on that? One person interested, you're in. DM me. <laughs> what types of skills are you guys looking for? You mentioned like business skills. and Yeah, so for us, we're focused on anything. Really, like we, don't, we have no barriers on the skills. Like we have a few people who are interns who are in school who are just, they're interested and they want to learn and they're, they're willing to just read links. Like if you're willing to read something and share it, that's a skill we're looking for. Whether it be summarizers, marketers, we have people, you know, the collective is plurality data scientists. So a lot of people are Python R people. We have data engineers too, but really any skill set, um, especially like marketing is a big one we're lacking. Product is one that we're really low on. We have like Greg and that's kind of it on product, although he's really good. Um, yeah, I would say marketing and product are two big gaps. Uh, neither of those is coding related. I'll, I'll even add that, and I also saw we had a question here from, from Russell, kind of moving into the NFT space. And I know I've talked to uh, Ken kind of about NFTs previously too. I mean, it's, it's so crazy the amount of volume that's happening in the NFT space. For those who maybe haven't been following, um, you know, OpenSea, which is the, basically the biggest market where NFTs are bought and sold, had a month where they did, what was it, three billion in revenue or something like that, which is a ton of money. So there's a ton of money. volume, sales volume. Volume, there you go. So that is pretty crazy. Um, and the, uh, the amount of, so it's a big market, right? We're talking, you know, billions and billions of dollars and there's very little infrastructure there. Um, and if you can have, you know, any sort of, you know, advantage or, or even just, even just right now, you'd be so surprised how low the bar is for any sort of NFT analytics. One of the, the leaders is basically like just taking data from, you know, an API or a database and like displaying it on a Google data studio dashboard. And like, like that's getting thousands of views a month. Like it's, it's, it's a pretty low bar right now in terms of the NFT analytics space. Um, so it, it is an interesting place. I, I, I'm a member of the Charlie Down. It's been fun to interact with some of the people over, over there as well. Um, I will ask Russell's question. Has any of you guys seen the recent use of NFTs for high-end whiskey bottles? I have not. Carlos, Ken, anyone else? Yeah, so just, just a quick comment on the broader trend of NFTs and RWAs, which is just a fancy acronym for real-world assets, um, is the idea that if you have an NFT, it's an on-chain record of a person who owns something. And when you have that, you have the base to do anything you want on top of that base. So like, once you have the record of who owns it, you can ask, hey, what's your address? What's your name? Are you old enough to drink whiskey? And you can start doing things like, okay, now off-chain, let's give you a thank you thing of whiskey. Uh, more famous examples are Unisocks. If you, they're almost, they're gonna be like $800,000 or a million dollars, a pair of socks that are real. You burn your NFT, and you get a pair of socks in the mail and people are not burning them because if you don't burn them, then you can sell them for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, there's sake, there's clothing, there's all kinds of like real world assets that are tied to NFTs. Um, and the big thing you wanna remember is like, this is just an on-chain proof that you own something and you can do anything you want on top of like proof that someone owns something. Proof of community is like the easiest way to think of NFTs. They answer your question, sorry. Cool. I, I'm, uh, I, I, NFTs are such a weird, crazy place. It's, 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 uh, it's a very interesting place. And like I said, the bar is pretty low for analytics. So if you are looking for a fun side project, um, I know I did, I did one 
about a month or a month and a half ago where I was I was basically looking to what the community calls whales, which is these these wallets or people, I guess, that own a surprisingly large amount of, you know, either, you know, money, <laughs> either, you know, crypto or or NFTs. So I did some analysis on some of these wallets and it was like millions and millions and millions of dollars. So that that is a fun space. Any other side projects going on right now that you guys have been working on that you guys have been enjoying? Any uh, anything you guys got going on? Eric, Monica, Greg, Matt, Eric, any of you guys got or maybe Albert? I know Albert has a LinkedIn challenge going on right now. Yeah, Greg, go ahead. Um yeah, so this this week has been like kind of weird for me. I've been uh plummeted by this um cool uh quantum computing challenge. Um and the the use cases were quite interesting because um, most of them were about optimization, and I learned quite a bit of things like how to use quantum computing um, power to optimize financial portfolios, a uh, group of assets, uh, minimizing the cost, maximizing returns. Um, I've learned how to uh, perform um, molecules, um, shapes for chemical use cases. Um, in terms of how uh, electrons rotate um, around atoms, that guarantees certain stability in the molecules, which is pretty cool. And then one of my favorite ones was um, a use case for electricity, um, where you know you'd have like uh, an electrical power attached to uh, your your house or uh, a company attaching, you know. Um, power box in your house and delivering that power to the grid where you can make money, et cetera. And if you have a fleet of power boxes, um, how do you optimize uh, which area, which zone to give off electricity to, knowing that the cycle of recharging, discharging will uh, over time uh, deplete the uh, unit's performance and how to optimize this whole system using quantum computing. So it's quite cool. It was painful. Um, I learned every time I touch these things and I touch Python and stuff, I know I don't want to be a coder. So kudos to any one of you with thousands of lines of code, because I will be that business guy just thanking you with, with, with whatever I can, you know, when I partner with you. So uh, it's been cool. And I encourage everybody to, yeah, <laughs> um, I encourage everybody to just, you know, just do something for fun and see what you learn. So what I got from this one is probably not much on the coding piece, but more like how you translate a business case into something technical and then, uh, you know, create something that, that you know, generates value, right? So it, it was cool. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. I know you dabble in, in so much. You have you have a very good, broad understanding of, of so many uh, so many different topics. Uh, it's it's very impressive. So I'm I'm scared of quantum. Has anyone else had any? I'm guessing no one's had experience with actual quantum computing. Am I right? Vin, has someone asked you to do an entire project only on quantum computers yet, or or not that impossible yet? I've had some experience with it, and I think the crazy thing about actually doing projects that are 
at some point supposed to be deployed on a quantum something because like there's three different types of quantum computers out there and no one really agrees completely on which one of them is really a quantum computer versus sort of a quantum computer versus the god you know the the singularity quantum computer I mean, it's it's one of those things where the more you do in the quantum space the more you realize nobody really understands any of this and companies like IBM and Google and everybody else is saying yeah check it out it's a quantum computer i got quantum supremacy and it sounds like you know that dude in ant-man the the guy that just once he starts talking he won't start stop talking everyone that i've ever like interacted with who's applied like actually doing something with quantum sounds like him like once you get them started it is an avalanche of information and you just can't like it's overwhelming until you realize everyone has a different take on it everyone's built something a little bit differently and none of it 100% works and every time you actually start asking in-depth questions about how quantum computing works even with PhDs, people that have spent 25, 30 years in the field of quantum everything, they get to a point where they just go, you got to be, you got to understand, we don't know. And there's, you know, there's no better example than I think it was about 10 years ago, a company in, I think it was Australia, came up with a, what they said was a quantum hard drive. And somebody asked the stupid question, you know, where's the data go? And no joke, there was, there were three very smart scientists on the panel who went um and that's literally quantum computing summed up like if you wanted to put it in a meme that's it oh it's, man it's kind of like it, it's gonna turn into like exactly that like how many of us using computers really understand what's going on under the hood right so um it's probably gonna be you know let the smart folks build those things under the hood and then folks like me come in and push a couple buttons and uh, spin up a couple uh, qubits and perform my calculations, right? So I set my parameters and things like that. So uh, do I need to know much about quantum support vector machine, which is one thing that I used for one of the use cases. And typically uh, qubits are, are very, uh, are not that scalable, right? So any for every column you have as a feature in the classical support vector machine, you need a qubit for that because you need to know how to translate the classical data into a quantum data to spin your, your qubits and perform uh, these probability checks. And as soon as you understand quantum computing calculations are good at probability checks when you work under uncertainty. And if you want like accurate classifications or not accurate classifications, if you want classification type of inferences like classical computers can give you, uh, then quantum is not for you, right? So what they do is uh, you have a lot of, there's something called a variational quantum eigenvector uh, where you can use a hybrid, you know, quantum system with classical system where the quantum does a probabilistic uh, check and then feeds that those probabilities to a classical system. And that classical system runs a cost function and then feeds it back, the, the parameters back to the, quantum system for optimization. So sounds familiar, right? So do we need to know all of this under the hood? I'd rather let the you know, smart folks deal with that and give me the UI and let me put my numbers in 
And then I tell somebody, look, if you put your money in Tesla, hint, hint, you're gonna get make a lot of money. And then you sell your real estate, you know, those are the things that, you know, <laughs> I think the world will continue to be split by folks who like to tinker under the hood uh, versus, you know, folks who just like to use cool tools and generate value for, for the business. Excellent point there, uh, Greg. We did a, there was a couple posts on LinkedIn this week. I know I had one about how I don't like elitism in data science. And I know uh, Ben Taylor had another one where he kind of talked about um, that he would like rather take like an average data scientist than like some PhD data scientist sometimes because they miss the whole value prospect. And, it, and it's a good debate to have sometimes. It's like, there are people in the world that are really smart that are able to, you know, build infrastructure that I can't fathom, you know, and make algorithms. Like, am I smart enough to, you know, write a new machine learning algorithm? Probably not, not really, you know, and I'm grateful that there are people to do that. And at the same time, there's people, we also need people like Greg, who's like, I don't want anything to do with programming. I don't want anything to do with quantum, but I'm going to figure, you know, a way that Amazon can make a heck of a lot of money out of this, or maybe Greg can make a heck of a lot of money out of this. And, and both are valuable. And I think sometimes, um, maybe, maybe we're, we're harsh, too harsh to the either side, but, um, that's, that's kind of my, my closing thought I think is like, you know, there, there are people who are really smart and maybe that's some of you guys, but some of you guys maybe are like, Oh, I'll just take what the smart people do and apply it to this specific niche and it'll bring a lot of value. And I think, I think that's, uh, I think that's very valuable. So, um, anyone else have any, any closing comments or, or anything to, I guess, set us off on the weekend? At, at the end of the day, Avery. You know, you might hear those fancy terms in quantum and stuff. The only advantage people can talk about now in terms of business value is time, right? What can you gain in, in terms of time? Uh, so far, classical computing can do a lot of things that quantum can do. Uh, the only advantage right now, people are kind of debating, it does it faster. But does doing it faster really bring value? I'll say it depends. Depends on the use case. Right? So, cores. Yeah, if it takes you a couple months to spin up a few molecules to create some drugs versus traditional two years, uh, then yes, it's a it's a quantum advantage. Uh, other than that, there's there's nothing else. Sweet. Well, thank you guys. Thank you guys all so much for being here. I promise you that next week I will grow my beard back and not have a haircut, and I will go by Harpreet instead of uh, instead of Avery. So thanks for. Uh, Bearing with me. I don't, I know I don't make it to a lot of these. My Fridays get pretty busy, but uh, good to see all your guys' faces again. And uh, yeah, fun, fun session. Appreciate all you guys being here. Thank you. Yep. Have a good weekend, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.